everyone, you're listening to IASA's Additional Coverage Podcast, episode number 26. I'm your host, Tim Hicks, and joining me for today's additional coverage, I'm pleased to welcome Charlia Taft. Good afternoon, Charlia. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Charlia is the NEIC Liaison for Sapiens, and today we're going to talk about preparing for regulatory exams. Dun, dun, dun. But first, I would like to recognize the support that we receive from IASA's member companies and volunteers. IASA is the voice of the insurance industry. If your company is not already a member, I encourage you to consider all the benefits that come with membership in IASA. The annual conference is coming up, IASA Exchange. It begins on June the 4th and will be in Minneapolis, Minnesota this year. We invite you to come and explore all of the educational offerings that will be there. Find out more at IASA.org. Well, Charlia, we've heard this term risk-focused exams tossed around in the industry, but aren't all regulatory exams risk-focused? They sort of are. But when your regulator calls for a risk-focused exam on your company, the intent is really as an audit that sees a little bit more than the financials and talks through some of the management in the company. And a lot of people confuse it with all the other audits and on-site reviews and things that they get, depending on what kind of company they are and you know what sort of filings they have. But it gets scary sometimes when you know walk into the unknown. And this one is a little bit, I don't want to use the word easier, but I think it's more user-friendly if you approach it from the right angle. I've heard the term principles-based and risk-focused and all these other things. How does risk-focused examination, how does that differ from what was happening prior to that? You know, we've had all sorts of financial cycles over the years. And originally, I was going to talk about, you know, going back to the savings and loan crisis or the real estate bubble and, or different influxes in, in financial trends that have happened over the last 20, 30, whatever years. But I guess, you know, this year, they already decided to throw some financial crisis at us and we've had some banking disruption. Those types of issues have really brought us to where we are in lots of regulatory areas. But for insurance companies in particular, when they do any sort of review of the financial statements, the intent is to look at overall solvency. And the NAIC as a group and a collective of regulators sort of came up with this process years ago, and it has developed into the risk focus template and the analysis that they do on financial statements, annual, quarterly, and all the other requirements that you file along the way are risk-based and risk-focused. And the trends that for the ratios and different things that the NAIC provides to your regulator are all based in that core concept. And for the risk-focused exam, when the regulatory team sends you some of the, uh, the prep documents to, to get ready for what you need to do and the documents that you need to prepare or get ready to answer questions on, they want to talk about how the company is managed and the corporate governance type of issues in addition to the bottom line and, and all of your other ratings, filings and financial ratios and balance sheet types of items. 
Now, how often are they doing this? Is it every year? Have we moved to an every year exam situation or is it? Not yet. Be careful what you wish for. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I'm not on the receiving end of that, so I'm okay. (laughs) Yeah, it does depend on your domicile state, your regulatory guidance there. It tends to be between three and five years. It can be waived based on the size and the age of the company, different cycles with respect to that, you know, how that goes. So you do need to check with your state regulator to see what your requirements are. They'll let you know for sure. But just so that you can be aware and, and you have that part of your compliance process you know, internally is a good step one. Where are we in the cycle and what do we need to, to know? In the olden days, you had a binder full of stuff that you pulled out once a year or, or whenever kind of went down your checklist and now you have it as a hopefully as a computer process or a reminder it's a good thing to put that in your reminder where you are on the timeline it does depend on the size of your company if you belong to a large company that's part of a huge holding company and an orsa filer which puts you up at the top of the tree you, you might have more requirements more regularly, or you may do that as a group. And that could be, be a difference between, you know, the different segments of business and how those big holding companies manage the organization. Yeah. And I know the Silicon Valley Bank is still hot on everybody's minds. It's like that went down so fast. It's like, should they have had more frequent examinations, especially as regards their investment portfolio? Because that's a big part of what took them down. It's a great example because it shows you that the outside of the house can look really good. And if you file the right forms with the right numbers on them and check all the boxes, does that mean you're okay? Well, sometimes it doesn't. And that's exactly what regulators are trying to prevent. So if there are more on-site discussions and corporate discussions and management discussions, there's lots of red flags that happen. And I've sat on those exam reviews where you go in and you talk to people and the little the little red flags pop up when you talk to somebody that should be in charge of just the regular internal compliance and they don't understand the basic core timelines of things. That makes you wonder, you know, and then when you talk to the people that are board of directors and they're not supposed to necessarily know the boots on the ground answers, but they should know the 30,000 foot view answers. And sometimes they don't. Those are red flags. Red flags everywhere. Yeah. Those aren't things that you'll see on forms that get filed electronically. Those are things that you have to talk to people to get a sense for. And sometimes companies are really good at filing the forms, but not really good at managing the day-to-day. And that's how it happens. Or informing from the bottom up. I want to go back to something you were mentioning a few minutes ago, because I've been through regulatory exams And I've been through the annual audited financial process. They're definitely not the same thing. Can you enlighten us a little bit on the similarities and the differences? Yeah, the core of these things is that some of it is the same information, but the difference between your annual audited financials is really making sure that those working papers match up to the the balance sheets and that the the process is clean. That's the intent everywhere, I believe. But on a risk-focused exam, at the end of the review process, the findings aren't, oh, we think this didn't balance. It's more, you know, your IT process could have better security guidelines to prevent this to happen, or you may want to have a more consistent process from this department to that department so that everyone communicates clearly and the flow happens easily for filings and different processes or, you know, your rate filings or your 
client reviews or, you know, different things with customer service can kind of trigger some issues there too. That's where risk focus sort of excels and can be a great learning experience for a company if you're willing to listen from that side of the fence. The regulators have the financial examiner's handbook as guidance, and that's available as an NAIC publication. There are also a few checklists that are available via the NAIC, and a lot of states provided that information as well so that you can kind of go through and see the difference of what would happen in risk focus versus what happens every year when your accountants bounce back with your external team. So a little bit more focus on the actual controls more so than the ticking and tying. So what then should our carrier company listeners be thinking about and doing to start preparing for their next risk-focused exam? Those checklists are available out on the state websites as well as the NAIC. Beyond that, some of the simplest processes can be internal with each company's compliance and effectively communicating with each other. Depending on the size of a company, I wouldn't expect the person that's preparing an individual investment analysis report to be the one that talks to the board of directors. But if your organization has a clear process from that person all the way up so that the person at the way up can understand from the 30,000 foot view how that is managed and who they would talk to to get a detailed report, that can really go miles and miles and miles with your regulator because they know you're paying attention. And having clean compliance paths is a really, really good thing. So all those petty little reports we put together to push up to the board meeting actually are really essential to helping the board understand the 30,000 foot view, as you say. Yep. The TPS report is important. That they're going to be asked about. Yeah. (laughs) Now, if okay, so if these risk-focused exams are really meant to determine if there's any shortfalls in the company's controls and processes, what happens if there are any negative findings along the way in the exam? What's next? Yeah, if you get a good exam team, and you know, and I say that with an if because I understand there's lots of different personalities out there, the kinder, gentler version of an examiner will talk to you on the way through and ask questions, and they just want the information to process through for their report. When there's a problem, they'll ask you more specifically or tell you. If you get one of the ones that's a little more particular or rough around the edges, depending on your view there, there's lots of them. Um, <laughs> sometimes they won't talk to you. They'll just gather all the information, collect it, and they won't t- start talking to you about the things that are considered findings until they get to the management letter. A lot of stuff can be in your management letter, and sometimes it's scary because you don't want to think you've done anything wrong and you don't want to be in trouble. But that is actually the opportunity to discuss it. And not everything that is in the management letter ends up in the formal public finding letter. There can be lots of ticky-tacky little tedious things that you just need to address or agree to or make, you know, say, okay, well, this is how we'll do it next time. And then they can follow up on it next time. And that gets sort of checked off. If it's a bigger issue and a more pressing concern that could impact the solvency of your company, then it becomes a finding. And there's a difference between the ticky-tacky things and the things that end up being findings, for sure. So the ticky-tacky things, remediation steps put in place, and double-checked by the auditor, typically sufficient. But a situation like we're talking about, Silicon Valley Bank, or even, you know, there are other companies that have been taken over by the state that you find the really big issues where there's some really big 
problems with something that's happening in management, something that's happened with the chief investment officer, something that's happened with the chief operations officer that is inappropriate, that could lead to a, a problem with the solvency of the company. So I, I think I get what you're saying there with the differences. Yeah, the, the, an example of a, of a smaller item might be that the company missed filing a, a Form D for an affiliate agreement or something or having it reviewed properly or having the approval letter saved altogether, things like that. And those are housekeeping items that you just need a better process for. In the case of bigger items where it is a solvency concern or some of those full stop moments that do happen, that can go through an appeals process or a more stringent legal process with the state regulator. Hopefully, we don't have to deal with that. You definitely hope you never have to deal with that. It's it's a bit embarrassing when the state has to come in and take things over and start selling off the books of business. There are ways that you can be ready for those exams, and we appreciate you taking the time to go through that with us. Well, that's about all the time that we have for today's podcast. But Charlia, if if our listeners want to reach out to you, what's the best way that they can reach you? I'm available. I think the easiest way is probably my email, which is my name, S-H-A-R-L-E-A dot Taft, T-A-F-T at sapiens.com. And if you have any comments about the show or any show suggestions, You can always email me at tim.hicks at fisglobal.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn. In our next podcast, I will be speaking with Dr. Princess Cullum on the topic of listening to understand. Until then, I'm Tim Hicks with today's guest, Shirley Taft. And Shirley, I really appreciate you giving me a few moments of your time today. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a huge favor and subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss a new episode when it comes out. If you have coworkers who also need to know about this podcast, please let them know about the show so they can follow along as well. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.